0: Father, I do pray that you would just bless this time as we go into Matthew chapter 3. And and Lord, as we see the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, that we would know that he's on the throne, he's coming back for us, he's alive, and Lord, we have great joy in our hearts because he went to a cross, died for our sins, he rose again, and we have a living hope. We have fellowship with uh, you, Lord through Jesus Christ, who made that possible. He has brought the ministry of reconciliation. And Lord, that we can have joy in our hearts knowing that there's a glorious, glorious future ahead for us. And Lord, that the church is not dead. The church is still alive. And you wanna use us to be light in these dark times. So I pray that you would bless our hearts as we gather right now. And Lord, help us be attentive. Sometimes it's hard to be watching a computer and listening, but, Lord, help us be attentive to the things you want to show us here in this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said, in the first couple weeks of March, we started Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to continue to look at the life of our Lord. And we, uh, last time, it was March the 8th is when we had our last Sunday morning. We were in chapter 2, and we were looking at the uh, record of the Magi from the East coming to worship Jesus, after he had been born there in Bethlehem. And we saw Herod the Great, who was the king of Judea, his reaction to the news as the Magi came and said that we're looking for the new king of Israel. Where has he been born? And we know how Herod tried to destroy the Christ child. He made that decree to kill all the male children two years and under uh, there in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, they are to be put to death. And Joseph, at that time, had been told in a dream to flee to Egypt. Take the baby Jesus, and, and, um, and Jesus actually was a toddler at that time. As we discovered, uh, they were in a house when the Magi came. He was a child. He was a toddler at that time when they came offering gifts and to worship him. But he would flee to Egypt until after the death of Herod. Then Joseph would take Mary and the child Jesus back to Nazareth. Nazareth is a town which is up in the Galilee region, really beautiful place up in the Samaritan mountains. And it was a little village at that time that really had a bad reputation in the nation. And that's why you read in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that it was Philip that said to Nathanael, hey, come and see the one which Moses and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael, his response was, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So that little village in the Galilee region would be the place where Jesus would grow up learning uh, probably the trade of his father, his father who was a carpenter. Uh, his stepdad is, is more of the, uh, the term that we use. His God was his father. But uh, as we move into chapter three, we jump from when Jesus was a young child to his baptism and then he will begin His public ministry uh, after the temptation of Jesus, we will look at in chapter four. But in between chapters three uh, or two and three of Matthew's gospel, they are called the silent years of Christ, which very little is recorded in the gospels about his childhood. Matter of fact, the only event is recorded in Luke chapter two. When Jesus was about 12 years old, and Mary and Joseph taking their family uh, to Jerusalem for the feast. And when they left, they noticed that Jesus wasn't with them. So they went back to Jerusalem. They're looking for Jesus. After three days, they find him. He's there at the temple. He is, you know, disputing and he is teaching the scholars that are there, the religious leaders. They are marveling at his wisdom. And Joseph and Mary said, Why did you? do this why did you you know leave us and Jesus responded by saying do you not know that I must be about my father's business so that's the only record that we see of Jesus' childhood. Matthew skips any of those events of Jesus' boyhood and now begins in this chapter to tell us about the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is an individual that we're familiar with. So let's begin to look at John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In verse 4 we read, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So John the Baptist is out, as we were told, in the Judean wilderness. And as most of you know, that that's a part of Israel that was hot. It was deserty. It was barren, very little vegetation, uh, rugged terrain. When we read that word wilderness, sometimes people can think about the wilderness in this part of the country in Colorado. We think of the Raywall Wilderness or the Comanche Wilderness, which is close to our homes. Rocky Mountain National Park, mountains and trees and, and plenty of wildlife. But this here, the wilderness, is the Nege Desert that John is out in and preaching in that area and it's interesting because the nation of israel at this time is going through dry barren rough times spiritually just as many of us perhaps as you're listening and as you are taking in this bible study here this morning you can say that that's been me During this time, I I feel barren. It's rough times. It's dry times. There have been times where I felt that way, to be honest with you. And the Lord desires to refresh us and renew us here this morning as we look at this. And here, the nation, they were going through this time because there had not been a prophet in the land for 400 years. It was called the silent years between Malachi and Matthew. And all of a sudden, this individual shows up, and he's out there in the desert, and Luke's gospel of this account tells us that the word of God came to John, and he's beginning to give a message of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, being a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, that he's preparing the way of the Lord. And I would love to have seen John out there in that desert, in that dry place, because as we read about him, we have this image, we have this picture as we're told of him the description of him that he's kind of this wild man out in the desert he hasn't combed his hair for who knows how long uh, hair all over the place while looking he's wearing camel's hair now uh, if you've seen a camel uh, and uh, if you go to Israel and you look at a camel there's all kinds of camels out there They are a desert animal. They're not the the most attractive animal. They're kind of an odd-looking animal. But you don't ever look at a camel, at least anybody that I know, and say, you know, I really would like to make a camel skin, you know, shirt out of that camel or a jacket or uh, a skirt or camel jeans. You just don't look at them in that way. And here he is wearing camel skin Eating locusts and wild honey uh, is such a strange image for us, especially somebody who's in ministry in our day and in our culture because today so much emphasis can be on dress uh, how you dress your image and how you speak and we you want to captivate an audience you want to use certain buzzwords you want to get their attention it's important to have feel good messages that was not john the baptist John the Baptist would not be popular today in the church. He's out in a bad location. He doesn't have theater seats. He doesn't have the lights. There's no air conditioning. It is hot out there. AND AS WE ARE INTRODUCED TO JOHN THE BAPTIST, WE BEGIN TO LEARN ABOUT HIM AS WE ARE INTRODUCED TO HIS PARENTS IN LUKE'S NARRATIVE IN CHAPTER ONE. WE KNOW THAT JOHN'S FATHER WAS A PRIEST FROM THE TRIBE OF LEVI, HIS NAME WAS ZACHARIAS, AND HIS MOTHER'S NAME WAS ELIZABETH, THE OLDER COUSIN OF MARY, THE MOTHER OF JESUS. And there is Zacharias, as we're told in Luke's gospel, that he's in the temple. Zacharias and Elizabeth are older. They hadn't had any children. And all of a sudden, the angel appeared and said to Zacharias that you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. Matter of fact, the angel said that God has heard your prayers. Zacharias, you and Elizabeth. And as I read that, as they're in their elderly age, and he he said, you're going to have a son. His name is John. Zacharias didn't believe it. Listen, we're past the age uh, of having children. And I'm sure Zacharias, when he heard the angel say, you've heard our prayers, we haven't prayed that prayer for a long time. And I want you to know this, that the Lord hears your prayers. In a time where you think, Lord, everything is Falling apart. And, and Lord, it, it seems like that everything's going down. Or it, it seems maybe even hopeless to you. And maybe you're at a point where as day after day and week after week. And, and now it's going into two months and who knows how long. That you stop praying. And I want you to know that the Lord hears your prayers. And he knows the bareness that is in your heart. And he loves you and he still is working and he wants to work in your life. Oh, God has heard your prayers, Zacharias and Elizabeth. You're going to have a son and he's going to be named John. And he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord and he's going to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so Elizabeth would conceive and John the Baptist would be born about six months prior to Jesus' birth. And John would be called uh, to be the forerunner, the coming Messiah, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, uh, wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us that Elijah, that he was wearing a leather belt and he ate locusts. Now, the clothing of wearing Camel skin was the clothing of a poor individual and eating locust that was the diet of someone who was very very poor Matter of fact when you look at Leviticus chapter 11 verse 22 in the dietary laws of the Old Testament That locusts and crickets and grasshoppers that was kosher. They were allowed to eat those things And they would be hard to swallow I would imagine so to help you out you dip it in a little honey But I believe that John, as we see this image of John out there in the desert, he's out there, you know, eating locusts and camel skin, that he has a message of repent, that he's a wonderful example to us this morning. As we see that he had such an incredible ministry, he is the forerunner to the Messiah, preparing for the coming Messiah. That was his ministry. He knew what he was to do, and he knew the message that he was to give. He's out there in the hot, barren desert. I've been out there in that desert. I've been out there at the Jordan, in the area where, where John was, and it is dry and it is hot. I've been there in the wintertime and it's hot. He's wearing ugly camel skin, and he's pre- preaching repent. How many of us would do that? But the wonderful example that John is for you and for for me is that he didn't, you know, have this identity crisis trying to figure out how he should be and the image that he should present. He didn't have that at all. He knew what he was to be about. He knew who he was. He knew his ministry. He was committed to it, and he knew this. That he was to simply be a voice talking about Jesus. To point people to Jesus. To to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And as he's out there in this difficult, hot, barren place. Verse 5 tells us, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. At this time, they're going out to see this man of the desert. John did not seek the crowds. They're coming out to seek John. John. But eventually, we know that, as particularly as we go into John's Gospel, that Jesus—we're going to see in chapter four—he begins his public ministry. After the temptation of Jesus, that we'll look at, he goes up into the Galilee region. He begins his public ministry. The multitudes are coming from all over—from Jerusalem, from Judea, all the region around the Jordan. The other Gospels say from all of Israel. Huge crowds coming out to that desert to see John. They begin to leave John, and they go to follow Jesus. And we will read that there's great multitudes up in the Galilee region that are seeking Jesus as he begins his public ministry. They're leaving John. And John's disciples in chapter 3 of John's gospel, they were kind of concerned about that. They said, hey, everybody's leaving you, and they're going to, to following Jesus. And John, he said, that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm the forerunner. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I've done my ministry, and he must increase and I must decrease. And then John says something very important in John chapter 3. He said that, that my joy is full. My joy is full, therefore my joy of mine is fulfilled, he says, because he spoke of Jesus. You see, his heart was full of joy because no matter where he was, in this case, out in the dry Judean wilderness, not the best and most comfortable of situations, but no matter where he was or how popular he was, what it was that he was wearing, he was focused on one thing, and that again was to point people to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, this joy of mine is fulfilled. I have great joy. And we will have joy as we tell people about Jesus. Point them to Jesus. As we tell them that that Jesus came and died for their sins and he rose again after three days. And he is your hope that your heart will be full of joy. And we know that as you read further in John's gospel in chapter 10, that Jesus said concerning John the Baptist, he didn't do any miracles. He wasn't out there healing the sick and, and, and feeding the multitudes and all of that. But he spoke concerning Jesus the things that he said were true. And Jesus said that he's the greatest born among women. All because that he spoke about Jesus, prepared people to receive Jesus. And if any of us want to be great in God's eyes, if you want to be full of joy, no matter where you are or how deserted you might feel even this morning, our purpose, every single one of us, and we are created for his good purposes as Revelation chapter 4 says, that our focus and our priority is to be a voice talking to people about Jesus, pointing them to Jesus, telling them to repent and turn to Jesus. So initially there was this great response. All of Israel's coming out to see John out there in the desert and and all around the region and to hear his message in verse 6, and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. So we know that John's baptism was a baptism of preparation of the coming Messiah. It was a baptism of repentance, getting people to admit that they were sinners and they have a need For the Savior to repent. Repent, as you know, means to turn direction. You're going the wrong direction. It's the message of Jesus. We will see the very first message of Jesus when he begins his public ministry is to repent. It's part of the gospel message. Repent, turn direction, and turn to Jesus. Recognize you can't save yourself. Quit going the direction you're going. The world isn't going to save you. That Jesus is the one. That has saved you, provided forgiveness of sin. Turn to Him, surrender to Him. It is part of the message that we see all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation turn direction and turn to God. So, John's baptism was not the same as Christian baptism today. When a believer comes to the water to be baptized, is to identify with Christ in that public proclamation that I've repented and turned to Jesus. Now here's John's baptism, as a baptism of repentance. Verse 6, people coming, confessing their sins. We continue reading, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So John, now, as he looks out in the multitudes, in the crowd, he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come out to the Jordan to come check out this man that everybody's coming to, and he begins to preach to them. And he calls them a brood of vipers. Now, that's not exactly the customary way to begin a sermon. Not exactly a, a real smooth introduction or a friendly introduction. Now, who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? As many of you know, those are two groups of religious leaders that we are going to read about as we go through Matthew's gospel. And they were the not only religious leaders, but the economic leaders of the nation. They were two groups of leaders that really didn't like each other. They were always at odds with each other. Matter of fact, the only time that they got together to agree on one thing, and that was to crucify Jesus Christ. But their common disagreement with one another and dislike for one another brought them together. But other than that, they didn't have a whole lot in common. Now, the Sadducees, they were the rationalists of the day. They considered themselves to be highly intellectual. They were smaller in number than the uh, Pharisees. They consisted of what you read about in the Gospels, the chief priest. Um, They believed to... Uh, TO BE ONES THAT THEY ONLY BELIEVED THAT IS IN THE FIRST FIVE BOOKS OF THE BIBLE THEY DIDN'T BELIEVE IN ANGELS THEY DIDN'T BELIEVE IN MIRACLES THEY DIDN'T BELIEVE IN THE RESURRECTION THEY DIDN'T BELIEVE IN ANYTHING SUPERNATURAL THEY REALLY DIDN'T BELIEVE IN MUCH OF ANYTHING NOW THE PHARISEES THEY WERE THE ritualists OF THE DAY THEY CONSIDERED THEMSELVES TO BE VERY HIGHLY RELIGIOUS, VERY GODLY. MATTER OF FACT, THEY WANTED TO KEEP THE LAW OF GOD SO BADLY THAT THEY MADE UP A WHOLE SET OF LAWS IN ADDITION IN THEIR INTERPRETATION OF THE LAW OF GOD. SO ANOTHER GROUP THAT YOU READ ABOUT IN THE GOSPELS IS THE SCRIBES. THE SCRIBES ARE THE LAWYERS. They were the ones that not only copied the Scriptures, but they interpreted the Scriptures. And so they took the law of God, made up a whole bunch of new laws as they interpreted the law of God in great detail. And the Pharisees were the ones. Pharisee means separated ones. We are going to separate ourselves, and we are going to keep the most minute details of the law, much of which consisted on keeping the Sabbath day. They were very puffed up, very proud, haughty kind of religious people at the time of Christ. They numbered uh, more than the Sadducees. They numbered about 6,000, it is believed, in Jesus' time. They had their long robes, their phylacteries they would wear. They would stand on the street corners and pray real loud so everybody could hear them. So people would think, boy, you guys are really spiritual. They had the trumpets that were blown as they would go and give their tithes. And they would even tithe... Uh, you know, of the seeds of the gardens, the mustard seeds and other herbs. They would say, okay, nine for me and one for God. They were so religious. They fasted twice a week. They were were dedicated to keeping the most minute details of keeping the Sabbath and and all of the law. and, And they knew every dot and tittle of the scriptures. And so these two groups... The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come out to the Judean wilderness to check out John. And between these two groups, you have represented all the power, all the authority, all the prestige of the nation of Israel. The Sadducees were generally wealthier than the Pharisees. They controlled the economy. They were the ones that were responsible, as we read uh, during... Uh, holy week that Jesus when he came and cleansed the temple and there are those uh, exchanging money and those selling of the sacrifices uh, there at the temple it was the chief priests it was the Sadducees that control all of that the Pharisees controlled the religious life and they would become a very much of a burden to the people and between the two of them they have everything in the world that people would look up to They come strutting down to the Jordan River in their robes and and their phylacteries and their noses in the air, thinking that we better check out this guy. And John looks at them and says, You're a brood of vipers. Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. You guys coming down here, you think that you're automatically qualified for God's kingdom. Because you're physically related to Abraham. You think that God owes you a favor. Well, you better get that out of your minds. Because God can raise up children of Abraham from these very stones. And you being a physical descendant of Abraham has nothing to do with your spirituality. There are people today that, that we talk to, they say, well, I'm spiritual, I'm a Christian because I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were Christians. That doesn't make you a Christian. Or I'm a Christian because I went through confirmation when I was you know, 12 years old at the church or uh, my name is on the membership roll of the church. That doesn't make you a Christian. And if you're listening, even as Paul would say to the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That Jesus said to Nicodemus, the most religious person that was on the scene, Nicodemus, the master teacher of Israel in John chapter 3, that you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must make a decision for Jesus Christ. Get right with God by putting your faith in him and repenting and turning to him. That's what, as we come in faith, makes us a Christian. That we're born again by the Spirit of God as we are saved and forgiven and have relationship with the Father. It comes through faith. Jesus would say in John chapter three, you must be born again. John says to them, bear fruits worthy of repentance, back to our text. That is, bear fruit that proves they repented from your cold hearted, prideful hearts. And there can be people that, who claim that, oh, I've repented, but there's no fruit of repentance in their life. You know, the word repent simply means to turn direction. Usually we have negative connotations of that word repent and picture a hard, stern you know, preacher that's pointing the finger at saying repent. It's a wonderful word that we can turn direction and turn to hope, a living hope, and have a relationship with God. And be born again by the Spirit of God. And John says, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what is John saying here? He's telling those religious leaders, let's get to the root issue here. Uh, Let's get to the root problem. You're sinners and you need the Savior. You can't hide in your religiosity, in your spirituality, in your status, in your prestige. Uh, Hey, we're the covenant people, they thought. We can't fall away from God, but they needed to repent. In verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than, than I, whose sandal... Sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John talking about the ministry of the coming king, the Messiah, who is going to appear on the scene, which he does in the next few verses, and when he comes, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And and right now, the ax is laid to the root of the tree, and if you're not repenting, if you're not realizing you need a savior, that sin is the enemy, if you're not bearing fruit, worthy of repentance is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. The Messiah has the winnowing fork in his hand, and he's separating the wheat from the chaff. Now, we live in an agricultural area, don't we? And we know that that grain, um, any kind of grain, wheat, barley, corn, uh, always has the kernel of grain surrounded by a shell, and that shell, of course, is called the chaff. And after the grain ripens, the chaff begins to separate from the kernel itself, and the chaff has served its purpose, and that was to protect the kernel until the harvest. No longer does it have a real purpose. So when the harvest was taken in, they would bind up the grain into bundles, That could be carried and you would bring it to what was called the threshing floor you read about the threshing floor particularly in the old testament and the threshing floor was simply a flat surface that was open on the side so that the wind could blow through it and all of the grain would be there with the chaff around it and you would take this winnowing fork this big fork and you would scoop up the grain TOSS IT IN THE AIR, YOU WOULD DO IT OVER AND OVER AGAIN, AND THE WIND BLOWING ACROSS THE THRESHING FLOOR, THE chaff, WHICH IS MUCH LIGHTER THAN THE GRAIN, WOULD BLOW ASIDE, THE GRAIN WOULD FALL BACK ON THE FLOOR, AND AFTER YOU WERE DONE THAT PROCESS, WITH THAT BUNDLE OF GRAIN, YOU WOULD GATHER THE GRAIN, PUT IT IN THE STORAGE BINS, AND THEN YOU WOULD SWEEP UP ALL THE chaff TOGETHER AND BURN IT. IT WAS NO LONGER OF USE. SO WHAT, John the Baptist is saying is that the Messiah, the King, is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He makes the point that Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Two things. An interesting statement that he makes here. We see in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus, after his resurrection, told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. For John truly baptized with water, But you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you're going to receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So John here says in Matthew's Gospel that he not only, that is Jesus, going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but secondly with fire. So what is John saying? He's saying that the Holy Spirit is like a fire that purges out anything that is ungodly in our lives. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit to give you the power to be my witnesses, to live a life for him and with fire. Now fire is a very fascinating substance. Fire, sometimes we think of usually as being very destructive, but there are many things that the fire will destroy and consume, but also there are things that you can put into a fire, and those things get better. You take gold, put it in a fire, you know, and the only thing that burns up is the impurities, the dross, and the gold comes out more purified, looking better than it did before. Any precious metal is like that. Put it in the fire, turn up the heat, and, and, and that fire, uh, that heat will purify that metal and it gets better. So John is saying here that the Messiah is coming and he's going to bring a baptism of fire, which is going to purge away your sins. to purge out of your life anything that is ungodly, anything that is unlike the Lord, anything that is not like Christ. The Holy Spirit working within you and me constantly, burning and purging, taking away the dross, refining, making us into the image and into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is the desire of the Lord in our lives. You and I are to be like gold, pass into the fire time and time again until finally that precious metal comes out and the Lord can see His image reflected in His eyes passing us through the fire over and over again, purifying us. And that's not an easy process, is it? As the Lord, as the heat has turned up in our lives, even as it is now in this time that all of us are in. But I also want to encourage you, please listen, that for me and for you, he wants to do that purifying work in our lives, purifying us. It's so important that we get off a dead center. It's so important that we not stay on the plateau in our spiritual walk with the Lord. It's easy to get comfortable. I've realized how comfortable I was before all this happened, how routine, all those things. And they weren't bad things at all. I'm comfortable. I'd love to just stay here. But I'm learning something. That the Lord is constantly calling us by His Spirit to higher heights, to a deeper relationship, a more intimate fellowship with Him, to be conforming to the image of Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And you see, He wants to purge out those things that need to go in our lives, that need to burn up. And I know He's doing that with me. He's speaking to me about those things. And I want to be more like Him today than I was yesterday. And when we come out of this pandemic, And out of this season. I don't want to be just like I was when we came into it. I want to be, Lord, closer to you. And to have those things that are unlike, you know, you. To be purged out of my life during this pause. To stay close to you and allow you to do that work. That purifying work in my life. He wants to do that in our lives. I don't want to be in the same place. I want to move forward in my fellowship and my relationship with you lord i want to grow in your grace and love and the way to do that is for us to submit ourselves to the purging fire of the holy spirit daily and constantly in our lives and as we read in verse 13 then jesus came from galilee to john at the jordan to be baptized by him and john tried to prevent him saying i need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. So Jesus comes on the scene to John to be baptized. Now why was Jesus baptized? What purpose did it serve? Remember that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus had no sin. There was nothing to repent from. He lived a flawless life. For 30 years now, he had never done or said or thought anything that was contrary to the will and to the heart of the Father. He was sinless. And Jesus, as he's baptized, we consider it, was it just to be an example to us that we should be baptized? I think it was much more than that. As we listen to what Jesus has to say about baptism, he very rarely used the word baptism. Matter of fact, after this, only two times that he spoke of baptism that I can find and both times he was not talking about being baptized in water. He talked about being baptized in suffering and death. You remember how James and John's mother came to Jesus and said, can you make my sons number one and two in the kingdom to sit at your right and left? And Jesus said to her, I have a cup to drink and a baptism to be baptized with. Can you drink of that cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? In another place, he said that I have a baptism that I must be baptized with, and I'm determined to set my face towards Jerusalem until I accomplish that baptism. And both times he was talking about being immersed with the sufferings of sinful humanity. He was talking about dying for their sins. So why was Jesus going to be baptized of John? To identify as us in that baptism with us sinners. And I think that what he was doing is he walked down to that river, that he was publicly committing himself to go to the cross, committing himself totally to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins. He knew that when he went down into those waters, that it would be a few short years later, that he would be immersed in the sufferings of sinful humanity, taking our place and dying for our sins. And when he was baptized, as we finish the chapter, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I think what he was doing as we go down in the water, as he's committing himself to go to the cross, and when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. So what does that mean? that mean? The Holy Spirit never appears anywhere else in Scripture like a dove. Never before this, never after this. Does he appear like a dove? This is singular. This is the only instance. It is unique in all of Scripture. So what does it mean? Well, under the Old Testament law, when you committed a sin, you were to go and to select a lamb. That lamb was to be without spot or blemish, and you would bring it as a sin sacrifice to the priest. If you could not afford a lamb, then you were to bring a dove. The dove was the sin sacrifice for the poor person. And as you brought that gentle, innocent little bird, you would watch the priest wring its head off and sprinkle the blood all around. And you became very aware a real object lesson for the worshiper because as you watched that process you knew it was because of your sin that an innocent life was slain you knew that a pure innocent tender life was taken because of your rebellion against God and it pressed upon you the seriousness and reality of sin Behold, the Lamb of God, John declares of Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. And the Lamb and the Dove are more similar than we think. You see, the Lamb is to the animal kingdom as the Dove is to the bird kingdom. They are both very gentle creatures, they are both defenseless creatures. They both have many enemies, yet they themselves are not the enemy of anything. Both have to be protected. Both are easily frightened. Both are very gentle. And so God chose them as symbols of the innocent life that had to be given when we sin. When Joseph and Mary came, you know, after the birth of Jesus to the temple to offer sacrifice, what did they bring? They brought a dove because Joseph and Mary were poor. And here comes Jesus out of the water. He has just publicly committed himself to go to the cross to identify with us sinners. And now the Spirit of God comes upon him in the form of a dove. We see the Trinity here. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him to give him the power in his earthly ministry and to go to the cross. The Holy Spirit was anointing Jesus as a human being and giving him the power to endure up to and including the cross. And as the Holy Spirit the sins upon Jesus it is God the father that a voice was heard saying this is my beloved son this is my beloved son this is the one this is the one that truly is going to take away the sins of the world this is the messiah that the prophets have predicted this is the one that you've been waiting for through all the centuries this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Father, we thank you for this incredible story, the baptism of Jesus. And I pray that right now that um, as we, we close the chapter in, and right now as we're in our homes that, that we want to pray together. So church, please don't turn off the computers if you, you don't have to. I know maybe some of you might have to attend to kids, but as much, let's come together right now Let's come together and let's pray, because we need to. And Lord, we just pray that you would do that purging work in our lives, in this church and in our lives individually, in our families. We know in this hot, barren situation and circumstance that we find ourselves in, that Lord, that you still want to work in wonderful ways, in our hearts individually in our families, in the church, in anything that is unlike You, that Lord, that we would be submitted to You in every way. For You to speak to our hearts, be comforted by Your Word, to trust that You're going to provide for us, to draw us closer to Yourself, because You're the one that baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And I pray right now that, that, Lord, that you would fill your people, fill your people right now with your love and with your comfort and with the Holy Spirit. That, Lord, we need more of you now and less of us, as we sing. We want to be more like Jesus, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ, to be a light to our family and to our community to the people around us, even as we're going to see in chapter four that there came a light in the darkness. And we want to be a light in that darkness. And I want to pray for anybody who may be listening that maybe you're not right with God, that you cannot save yourself, the world won't save you, a church can't save you, a pastor can't save you, only Jesus who went to the cross immersed in suffering and death as he hung on that cross to die for your sins. And He loves you. And He says, repent. Quit going in the direction you're going and turn to me. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone, if it means anything to anyone, that you would come and save in faith, be born again by the Spirit of God. It's just acknowledging you're a sinner and putting your trust and faith in Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the grave. And the invitation is to come right now. In the sincerity of your heart, right where you are that you can pray with your heart that Jesus I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins I believe in you you're my hope you're the one that loved me so much that you died on that cross for me forgive me of my sins I confess I'm a sinner and I pray that Lord you would be my personal Lord and Savior I believe that you're alive and I thank you for this new beginning. I bring, thank you for bringing life and making me spiritually alive, born again. And I do want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And if you prayed that prayer, listen, please, will you get a hold of us? Call us at the church, email us. We want to follow up with you. We want to encourage you. But, Father, I do pray right now that this day and the days ahead that you would guide us and direct us provide for us as we all have to adjust as we have decisions to make as we need your provision lord we need you more than ever show yourself strong in our behalf encourage our hearts help us not to be weighed down with worry and with anxiety and fear of wondering but lord to stay safe because you are a place of stability and protection and provision. Keep everyone healthy here, Lord. Keep everyone healthy. Lord, bless those who are hurting right now. I pray for Tracy, Gary, who lost her father last night. I pray for comfort for her. Lord, I pray for those who, Lord, are, are afflicted physically, those who are afflicted economically, those who have so much uncertainty and Lord, I just pray for your strength and comfort to come to them in every way, Lord. So Father, we thank you for this morning. We look forward to Wednesday night as Wednesday night we'll be back in the book of Jeremiah and the days ahead. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wednesday night, book of Jeremiah. Join us for that. Hope to see you soon. God bless you.